Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Please be advised, the following episode contains references to violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. This is Bets You Should Know, a podcast from iHeartRadio, celebrating the many who have selflessly put their lives on the line to serve their country in the armed forces. Every Veterans Day, we as a country honor and commemorate the people who fight for our freedom and defend our country. And in this four-part series, you'll hear from these individuals as they share their unique experiences in the military and the lessons they learned that carried them into their new roles in civilian life. In this episode, I speak with retired U.S. Navy Chief Sonar Technician, Jenny Brett. Jenny served in the Navy for 20 years, but 14 months into her service, Jenny was sexually assaulted. Rather than let this deter her, she used these events to fuel her. She vowed to become an ally for those who would find themselves in similar situations. She wanted other women and LGBTQ members of the Navy to know that they had someone on their side. Today, Jenny works tirelessly to research and identify safe spaces for women and LGBTQ veterans. Hey, Jenny. Hi. Well, I'm super happy to have you here. And let's start from the beginning. I want to go back to where you grew up. You know, what was it like at home? I grew up in northeastern United States. I grew up in uh, a little town called North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Um, It was, by all accounts, idyllic. I am from a middle-class, very white family in a middle-class, very white town. Everybody had a quarter-acre lawn and everybody's lawn was always done really well and everybody had nice cars in the garage and it was a very upper middle class upbringing. My parents were married until I was out of the house and I went to a great high school and I went to college. I was actually 17 when I graduated high school and I went to college very briefly and I uh, I knew leaving high school that college was not going to be for me. I just wasn't ready for college yet and so I waited long enough till I turned 18 um, and then immediately enlisted in the military. When I was a kid, I knew there was something else besides just my little hometown in Massachusetts, and I wanted to get at it, but I didn't know how to do it except to join the military. It was kind of like my version of joining the circus. 
at that point in the late 90s, they were heavily recruiting women. Um, and I knew that. I knew that's why I, one of the reasons why I wanted to enlist was Tailhook was still very much sort of a, a big deal. I don't know if you know what Tailhook is or if anyone knows what Tailhook is anymore because it happened such a long time ago. But in the late 90s, mid 90s, there was a military convention called the Tailhook Association, and they got together and there was some really inappropriate gender-based violence and some sexual harassment, and there were um, sex workers hired to work for this organization, and just a whole lot of really inappropriate behavior. It made the news. A woman blew the whistle on it. Her name's Paula Coughlin. She's amazing. She still speaks about um, military sexual violence. And the Navy's answer at the time, and, and all the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided we should put more women in the military, and so women were going to be allowed to be in ratings where they weren't allowed to be in before. So there were more opportunities opening up for women. Talk about your first year in the military and and how different that was for you. Wow. So like I said, I'm from a um, a very white middle-class town in Massachusetts and boot camp was a huge eye-opener for me. I mean, I was 18 and had never been hungry in my life, and I had always had medical care. Um, the the idea that someone had signed away the rights to their child, to their parents, in order to do this, to get medical care because they weren't able to feed their kids, was shocking to me. Like, to me, it was almost kind of a a diversion or like an escape. But to some people, it was it was a life changing. It was a a necessary decision in order to survive. It sounds like your experience in the Navy gave you a different perspective of the world and some of the different struggles that people face every day. It, it definitely opened my eyes to experiences like that. Um, so my best friend is still in the military. She is a hull technician. She's a welder. She's an amazing little bulldog. She is the coolest chick I've ever met in my life. But her partner, his parents were refugees from the Khmer Rouge of Hmong descent. They're a hill tribe that lived in the areas of Laos and Thailand and Cambodia. He comes from a very large family. His parents weren't very, you know, well-educated they came here in the 70s with virtually nothing. He became a citizen through the refugee process. But for him, it was definitely a way to pay back what the U.S. gave him. I mean, it gave his family safety where he didn't. And I'm like tearing up right now because it, it it's a concept that I think a lot of us don't understand. My parents did not escape violence through the literal jungle carrying me to a refugee camp but that was that was his experience and so for him it was a a payback thing and then my friend grew up in south texas she actually grew up just outside of san antonio where i am now um and her family was military she was homeschooled for most of her schooling career and her family was very very religious but her dad was in the air force and the army both and for her, it was just, there was two things. It was their calling. It was just what their family did. And two, it was, they didn't have any money for college or, you know, once you turn 18, that's that's what you do. You, you leave and you, you make your own way. And for her, making her own way through the military was, you know, the best option. Whereas for me, I, I could have gone to college, but I would have had to do what my parents wanted me to do. And I had to go to the school that they wanted me to go to. And 
I was kind of rebelling just by saying, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm just going to go out on my own at 18. And I had to find a job and a place to live and food. And the Navy was like, hey, we have all of those things. Yeah, very three very different experiences within, you know, two of my friends and myself. Many of us have seen sonar technology depicted in films or TV, but Jenny is the real deal, and she has a skill set that few have. So Jenny, tell me about what a naval sonar technician does and what those responsibilities are. So we are underwater subhunters. We're basically the ship's last defense against a submarine threat. There's two kinds of sonar technicians. There's submariner sonar technicians and there's surface ship sonar technicians. Submariners use sonar to navigate. It's how they survive. So for them, sonar is a much um, plays a much more important role. Sonar in the Cold War was incredibly important. Now we work in a multi-unit way. So we work in, in conjunction with aircraft and with helicopters and we listen for subs, look for subs. If need be, we can neutralize a sub threat. The real plan is if we find one and we think it's hostile to run away and hope we manage to get away in time. If you're a surface ship, you don't want to go toe-to-toe with a submarine because they can get much closer to you than you can to them before you find out. I worked on a system that is underwater fire control. So Underwater fire control is the torpedo system on board. So I was sitting at the console that actually fired torpedoes. And so they would send over a hostile contact and you'd line up the ship in the right direction with the submarine and so that your torpedo could actually hit it. And finding a submarine is very, very slow. Neutralizing a sub threat is very, very quick. I mean, no one has done that in the history of the United States naval warfare in a very long time, and hopefully no one ever has to again. But in practice, that was a lot of fun. It's two hours of quietly sneaking around in the water looking for a submarine, and then five minutes of the most intense, you know, everybody's calling things back and forth. You wear a headset with two different audio channels in it, so there's, you know, five people in each ear talking back and forth. And everyone's standing behind your chair, like the captain is standing right behind you and like literally breathing on your neck. And no one knows what your screen says. It's kind of like the Matrix. Everything looks kind of weird, but I understand what it says. And the guys in Sonar are the same way. People go into Sonar and look and they're like, what is that? It's just lines. But yeah, it's it was pretty intense. Um, I really did enjoy it because it's it makes you feel really important, like when when you're sort of the last hope. Sonar is very interesting. It's a lot of fun. It's it's very secret squirrel. You know, the, the vast majority of it is classified information. So it's interesting to know sort of what the other parts of the world can do in terms of their submarine forces and their, their naval sonar systems. And it's, it's really fun to work with other countries. Um, we worked a lot with the Canadians. We worked with the Australians. We worked with the Japanese. We've worked with lots and lots of other allied countries doing submarine stuff. So we work with their aircraft and we work with their helicopters and their their teams in their helicopter and their aircraft. So yeah, it was really interesting. I know when you were in the Navy, you dealt with sexual assault. 
do, do you feel like that's somewhat common or uh, with with women in the military at least having to hear or be exposed to it? I think it's incredibly common. I think it's so common that a lot of women don't recognize it. I think it's accepted. There's a lot of just language and small actions. Sometimes people call them microaggressions. I'm not really a fan of the term microaggression. I think it's just an aggression. But just the language and the way that the military operates in general tends to be not very welcoming to people who are not the norm. So yeah, I think I think it's very very common. So I was sexually assaulted at 19. I was in my initial training school and the guy who assaulted me was older, he was a marine, he was married, and so I trusted him and there were a lot of red flags, his language was inappropriate, but there were no women in my chain of command. They were all men and I didn't have anyone to model appropriate behavior for me. I didn't have any women who could tell me that hey, that's not okay and that's probably not safe. It was my first time out of my little hometown. So when I was sexually assaulted, he went through the NJP process. It was not to my satisfaction. Um, He was not held accountable for his actions. And in fact, I was held accountable for his actions. I realized that one of the reasons that it went so badly for me was that there was no one there to advise me. There was no one to commiserate with me. And there was no one to have warned me that it wasn't going to be okay. Oftentimes, women who report sexual assault in the military are given the option to end their service early. But rather than leave, Jenny set her sights on becoming an ally for others and a champion for fairness. After the fact, I was taught, this is normal. This is what happens. And I'm sorry this happened to you, but expect it from now on. And I didn't really know what to do with that anger. And so I decided to channel it into my work. There were newer girls on base. And so there were, you know, men talking about the newer girls. And and I thought, you know what? I didn't have anybody there for me. So I'm going to be a support system for someone else behind me. And I told myself, if I can change one person's experience for the better, if I can stop what happened to me from happening to one person, then I can sleep. I made changes and I intercepted talk gone wrong and, and just acted as a support system to as many people as I could. And so every time I felt like I had done something for someone that hadn't been done for me, I felt a little bit better about it. And then I got a little bit more serious about trying to deliberately make that effort. My second enlistment was so about seven years. I really saw that as my job. I was like, you know what? I'm going to stay just to do this. I'm going to do my job. But in my head, my goal was to be the person that I needed when nobody was there for me. How would you mentor other women within the service who experienced what you did um, during the time that you enlisted? I would, first of all, let them know that they are not the only one experiencing it. I think for a lot of us within this culture, so often 
the longer you stay in, the fewer of you there are. So a lot of times I was the only woman in my job field. I was the only woman in a room a lot. One case, I was the only woman of my rank on my ship. Um, And that's a very, very lonely place to be. So I would recommend that they seek each other out and find each other and support each other, even across ranks and across job fields and across departments and divisions, because the way that it's the easiest to fail is when you're doing it alone. And the more support you have, the better. And then it's not just women who support us, it's also men. And so I think more than mentoring the women, who I think are on the right track, honestly, I would start with men and I would let them know what women need from them in order to succeed. You retired from the Navy after 20 years. You went back to school in Texas. Right. That's a big move. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, So I am a grad student at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And I am a cultural anthropologist who studies the lasting impact of being in a military environment on women and LGBTQ veterans, um, including transgender people and gender nonconforming and gender nonbinary. I intend to do research on wellness and well-being and feelings of belonging, looking at post-military communities that veterans join up with. Many women veterans do not feel comfortable in sort of the traditional, what we call the big six veterans organizations like the Disabled American Veterans or like Vietnam Veterans of America, the American Legion or Veterans of Foreign Wars, VFW. A lot of those places are not necessarily welcoming to women, to LGBTQ folks. And so a lot of women who have felt uncomfortable get out of the military A lot of us sort of test out those places. We'll go to the VA, you know, to get our care and feel uncomfortable at the VA. We go to the VFW, maybe, or we go to the Legion, and we try and fit in in a couple of different places. The problem is that a lot of us were not comfortable within the military environment to begin with. It is a very masculine environment. It's an intentionally masculine environment. And a lot of us felt the need to perform an excess of masculinity while we were in the military and we got out and sort of readjusted and fell back into our lives. And so that environment is no longer comfortable for us. And so in order to go into those places, we kind of have to revert back to our military selves, which are not comfortable. And a lot of those places are places where, especially older veterans, especially the the older male veterans, go in order to revisit those feelings of masculinity and that comfortability with their veteran personas. Whereas we we want the connection and we want the community and we want people who understand what it's like to be us, but we don't want to have to perform this veteran role, this sort of hero role that people expect. I just want to be me and tell my stories and talk to people who understand what I've been through and what my experience is without having to overtly perform some role. So my research is based in that. I'm hoping to find organizations where women veterans do feel comfortable and LGBTQ veterans feel like they can be their whole selves and not have to hide part of themselves or have to perform in a certain way. And 
find out what makes those organizations so welcoming. So far, I've only really experienced one organization that I think is doing incredibly well, and that's Focus Forward Fellowship, which is a fellowship for student women veterans. They're all ages. They come from every conflict. They've served any amount of time. Some of them are um, currently active duty. They're serving in the National Guard. Interestingly, for me, within that organization, it's only for women-identifying veterans, and there are no male participants in any form for the entire residential portion of the fellowship. So women veterans apply, they go to Indiana, which is it's at Purdue University, and they're there for 72 hours for the residential portion, and then the rest of the annual fellowship is conducted online in Zoom groups like this. There are no men in a room with you at any point for 72 hours, and it's incredibly healing to be able to feel safe, I think, for the women who take part. And it's incredibly healing to not have to start at a baseline of explaining performative gender behavior or why some of the talk that we experienced was difficult or how hard it is to not see representation. In a lot of cases, women veterans are very isolated. And it's very, very difficult because you don't have any support systems. You don't have anyone to turn to. And most of us sort of grow up in the Navy being independent and being fiercely independent. And we build these very thick brick walls of self-defense. And it's amazing. You can almost physically see those walls coming down uh, with these women in a room full of their sisters. And... I want to know what the mechanism is that makes that happen because Focus Forward Fellowship is one fellowship. It takes place once a year with 20 women. But if I could figure out what the tiny piece is that makes that possible and tell everyone else so that we can all have that experience, women, men, people who are LGBTQ, gender non-conforming, able, disabled, everyone deserves to feel like those women feel for that 72 hours. I just need to figure out what it is. What I need to distill that down to a dissertation. So what is your goal by studying this? Meaning what action do you hope to do? I would really love to be a professor. I love academia. I think academia is an incredible way to reach people sort of before they feel like they're they've completed their whole selves. I feel like college is really a place where people see themselves as developing humans. They just want change and they want to take on a way to be better. And I think being a professor is a really incredible opportunity to reach people that want that change. I'm using my experience as a woman veteran because that is my closest experience with dealing with situations of unequal power structures. Hopefully, whatever information I find and whatever information I manage to distill out of these organizations will be useful within any organization that has unequal power structures and will be useful to any person who finds that they have spent time in a unequal power structure. They, they felt like they had to perform in a certain way within an organization and now they're struggling to sort of readapt to a different life. I'm hoping that this transcends the veteran experience into just people experience. 
it seems like there might also be opportunity to influence policy change in academia, right? Absolutely. So I hope to be able to inform policymakers that are creating policies for the military, influencing post-veteran service organizations, places like Disabled Veterans of America and Vietnam Veterans of America, um, the American Legion, those places that are kind of recognized as veteran sort of helping organizations about how their practices impact women and LGBTQ veterans and how they could better serve us as a community. I know inclusivity is very important to you. How would you like the military to be more inclusive? I think the very first thing the military can do is to change the language that we use. Military folks love to use the words male and female when describing people. Um, I think it is very reductive. It reduces people to their biological capability, and it assumes a binary that just doesn't exist. Biology has told us for years and years, scientists know, um, I think everyone knows at this point, that male and female are definitely on a spectrum, and people are just not one or the other. Um, In some cases, they're both. In some cases, they're neither. And I think the use of that language puts the military on the wrong foot and and starts in boot camp being very exclusive and very binary. And you have such an interesting story. You know, what would you take from it to to share with other women who are just thinking about entering the military? You know, they're at the infancy stages of, of their process. I definitely think it's an incredible jumping off point for any career. The benefits are amazing. I would not be able to be in this profession now and doing the work that I do if I hadn't been in the military and retired. The paycheck allows me to be in academics. Academia is not a job that pays well. So being able to be an academic um, is definitely because of my military career and also my post 9-11 GI Bill, you know, paid for my undergraduate career. So that was helpful. And I think if you take the lessons that we learn just the very basic lessons, the soft skills, the being on time, learning how to organize, learning how to network. They come in handier than I expected them to come in my post-military profession. So I would absolutely recommend it, but I would definitely recommend that women look immediately for mentorship and for a network of them themselves and of of allies while they're doing whatever job they're doing in the military. Do you think change is possible in the Navy? I do think it's possible. I think that there are some amazing people working to change things right now. Like I said, I think that the women who are still in the military right now are making change, and I think they have the resources that I didn't have to reach out beyond the military and reach out to people who are making policy changes. There are some amazing people working within policy, working for veterans organizations and working with congressmen and working with representatives to make change. The I Am Vanessa Guillen Act is being written and being pushed. And there are some amazing women working on that, both women involved with some of the organizations that that I'm researching and women who are who are policymakers, women who are on on boards within the House of Representatives and in the Senate. So I think we are absolutely at the crest of a big wave. 
it's just a matter of how long does this wave roll before it really crashes down and change is made. I think we're making huge progress, but I think there's still a lot of progress to continue to be made. And I don't think even once we managed to make progress, I think we're going to find that there's more to still be made. I really appreciate the time and, you know, thank you for, for spending it with me. And as we are, you know, into Veterans Day and out of Veterans Day, if you got a bunch of a normal folks like myself who are like, what can I do? Like, what, what's something easy people can do to celebrate Veterans Day? Wow. Um, there's so many organizations that are smaller organizations that are local organizations that are helping veterans that are not, you know, sort of the big six um, veteran service organizations. There's probably one in your hometown. Those little organizations are really vital for connecting veterans as communities. They do things like, you know, providing service dogs, which I know you're familiar with. They do things like therapeutic programming. So if you can find a smaller organization in your hometown and find out what they need, maybe they just need money, maybe they need volunteer time, maybe they need you to phone bank, but um, if you could just spend one hour looking for a smaller organization and helping them out, that would mean the world to at least one veteran. My final question, you know, what lessons have you taken from the military that you've applied to your work now as a grad student researcher um, or into your civilian life? I really learned that there are so many different stories. Everyone has a different experience. No one has a life like mine. And so in hearing those stories and in telling those stories and in giving people space to tell their own story, we learn so much about each other. And I think we all feel so much more connected and more of a community if we just give ourselves that lesson and that gift of, of listening. So I think that's what I've learned is to ask people what their story is and, and to ask them to share their experience with me because I can learn from them and they can learn from me. Check out our website, jenibrett.com, jennybrett.com or Jenny Ryder on Twitter at jeniryder. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for sharing your story. And I think a lot of people are going to take a lot from this. So, so thank you very much. Thank you, Bobby. It was so nice to be here. I want to thank Jenny for sharing her story and being a support system for so many veterans. Change is possible, especially when there are people like her working to create a fair and just system for everyone. To find out more about the Focused Forward Fellowship and similar veteran resources, check out the list in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Vets You Should Know. Check out our other episodes for more great stories from inspiring vets who continue to work selflessly and tirelessly in civilian life to make positive change. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast. We want to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe for free or follow the show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Vets You Should Know is a special four-part series podcast from iHeartRadio hosted by me, Bobby Bones. Our show is written and produced by Molly Sosha, Andy Kelly, Ethan Fixell, in partnership with Haley Erickson and Garrett Shannon of Banter. Edit, sound design, and mix by Matt Stillo. And my personal producer and hero is Mike D. 